0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Square's new valuation equals all but the biggest US banks, EU banks create their own payment system to rival Visa and MasterCard, and 7 million people still use 123456 as their online password. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 443 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, the one and only Mr. Jason Bates. How are you doing today, Jay? I'm good, Simon. How are you? Yeah, really well, thanks. I've been uh, running around a little bit, having fun, um, playing with all kinds of new concepts. We're releasing a report soon, and that's been keeping me busy, but uh, good to have lots to do, grateful to have lots to do. And we've got lots of great guests this week as well. Um, We have got Alex Frian, who is head of corporate affairs at Starling. Thanks for joining us. You've had a busy week, which we'll talk about in due course, but Alex, thanks for being back on the show with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: No, no. Thank you so much for being here. And making a fintech insider debut uh, is Mike Dudas, who's chairman of the board over at The Block. Thank you for joining us all the way from New York. How are you doing, sir?
2: Of course, doing well. And, and thanks for having me on. Excited to sort of step up to the big time from from your uh, from your other podcast.
0: Yeah, from blockchain insider to fintech insider, <laughs> you can live the dream. You can make it. <laughs> I'm, I'm humbled. I'm hearing Sinatra play in my head, but before we get into that, let's get into the first story. Um, okay, so there was a Square rally um, that sent its valuation into some of those amongst the biggest U.S. banks. So, of course, Square Incorporated has been on a rally, and Square has a market capitalization of around 55 billion US dollars, which has more than doubled since May, making it worth more than uh, all but four banks in the KBW Bank Index. While it's still dwarfed by J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America, Square is less than $20 billion shy of Goldman Sachs's market valuation, which is just incredible. Of course, we know tech stocks have soared this year and banks have sunk and the tech-heavy Nasdaq index has gained 21% and the bank index has fallen. But Mike, you were tweeting about this um, as well as also Twitter stock. What are your thoughts on on when you see things like this?
2: Square is it's an incredible company. Uh, it began, as we all know, you know with a dongle and, and basically solving a problem for merchants who weren't able to easily accept credit cards and you know, using that wedge has has expanded now into effectively uh, a full service, you know, a full stack financial services company, uh, not only for those small merchants but for increasingly larger merchants, uh, as well as you know, years after that, introducing a consumer facing uh, business that originally looked like a Venmo clone, but has increasingly become itself a full stack financial consumer financial uh, product and business. So any time that you discuss or, or think about Square and its valuation, its potential, uh, and, and, and the you know, long-term market opportunity, you have to look back at kind of those really humble and small beginnings and how quickly they've come from each of those starting points, both on the merchant side and the consumer side, and exploded uh, into something significantly larger. Uh, so you know, just a few years ago, Square stock was trading publicly after years of, of you know developing a pretty good business. Uh, it was trading you know, below its IPO price, nine dollars, and you know, at, at that point, I said, "Hey, it's a screaming buy." Uh, you know, since then, it's I think now what is it, thirteen x, fourteen x? That's trading like you know, uh, uh, you said a fifty-six billion dollar market cap today, uh, and so my frame of reference for Square valuation is not. Uh, it's not basically valued uh, like a bank would be, or like a traditional financial services business um, with traditional metrics. Uh, you have to think about it as effectively, eventually, you know, ten, twenty years from now, um, you know, just being something so so much larger um, than what it is today. You know, the way that, for example, Netflix transitioned from being DVDs at home to effectively, you know, your the video subscription that's in every single home. Um, the the sort of bull case for Square's valuation isn't tied to their financials today. You know they're not making much, if any, money in most quarters. You know from a profitability perspective, like most banks are, who are you know, making you know, tr- tremendous profits. Um, but you have to think about: Are they, over time, from both merchants and from consumers, you know, going to be getting a consistent flow of money and and really be that connection point um to financial services and it increasingly seems like the answer is yes for an increasing number of merchants and consumers
0: it's really interesting isn't it mike how massive they've grown but also how investors are looking at them for that future side but jason um Mike talked about uh, the difference between how banks are throwing off potentially lots of profit but are valued really low, and companies that aren't throwing off a lot of profit but could be valuable in the future um, are potentially seeing different valuations. Has the world gone mad, or is there something? Do you think there's some logic there?
3: Um, well, in the end, I, I agree with Mike. Like the the space that square is in is the is financial services embedded into end-to-end journeys in commerce and travel and retail and all of those things and you might argue that the big banks have really dropped the ball i mean mm. merchant acquiring was a thing but it was a horrific thing it was difficult to open the account it was expensive it was long-winded you know you couldn't embed it into uh into digital sites easily like way back in the day it was just a, a nightmare and and it was that uh, merchant acquiring business that a new player came along and t- has taken a, a big chunk out of. So there's there's a problem there, I think, around how banks have uh, have not have allowed this to happen. And then there's the is this a valuation against a merchant acquirer or is it a valuation against a player of embedded finance? In, in consumer journeys because if you throw in lending and escrow and insurance and payments and not just MasterCard and Visa Rails but all of the rails, then all of a sudden you've got that sort of one-stop shop for embedded finance that, that does make a lot of money and this is their first, you know, their first step along that journey. They're becoming more of a
0: platform that can sort of serve that stuff really up into into consumers. But I'm interested to bring Alex in here because Alex, um, as a digital bank, um, there's a lot of this stuff that Square does in the US that a lot of the banks in the UK, especially the digital banks are doing Square Cash has been in the UK for a little while Square the merchant acquirer has been in the UK for a little while but isn't the phenomenon it is in the US. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think the markets are different or do you think it's just a matter of time till, till things start to, to change?
1: Well, no, we're keeping a close eye on them. Of course we are. You know, they're as um, uh, Mike and Jason have said, you know, they, they've been brilliant. They've gone wide, they've gone deep. And... Um, good for them. I just read an analyst report this week, um, which was predicting they could capture 20% of US direct deposit accounts uh, uh, within a, I can't remember what the time frame was, but a very short amount of time, which is amazing. Um, and re- let's remember, they're doing all of this with a completely different cost base to the big banks. And, and that's a massive differentiator, that cost base. Uh, that's, that's what's going to kill the big banks. They, they can copy the technology, um, but they can't they, could, they just can't do that. Um, uh, yeah, no, we're, we're watching them. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think that speaks volumes, Alex. And I think it's interesting uh, that, uh, Mike, Jason mentioned merchant acquiring, but you mentioned also the cash app, which is a huge piece of uh, sort of Square's business going forward. And, and as you said, Venmo-like in that it's peer-to-peer payments. It feels real time. Uh, there's a lot happening in that cash app. But do you think... You know, it being used for PPP loans, it, it does it become a beachhead into doing some of those things that Jason said? And of course, um, you'll know very well that they they're starting to offer other things up through
2: that. It feels like they have established that beachhead. I think that same analyst report uh, cited something like they've added 11 million direct deposit accounts uh, during the COVID pandemic. I mean, that's incredible. So if they've if you're depositing your money directly in, you know, now you're the, the, for many folks, the primary or secondary consumer financial services uh, portal that I'm using, right? I I have my Chase and and now Cash App and, or maybe Cash App is the primary one. And then there's a tremendous number of opportunities from there. You know, they've increased their brokerage business. You can buy and sell stocks. You can buy and sell, you know, crypto at this point now, or Bitcoin only. I'm sorry. It's, it, they're they're clearly going to be doing more, and they'll probably follow the same playbook that they followed on the merchant side, which would start with one very specific service, which was moving, you know, accepting money. Um, they started that on the consumer side and then expand from there. Uh, but again, there's no there's no way to look at the price like the original question. Yeah, you know, there's no way to look at the price of the stock today fifty six billion dollars. Uh, enterprise value and say that's based on today's economics, you're effectively making a bet that this is a Netflix or Amazon-style market, and it is a massive market, You know, consumer financial services. Really, today, it's, it's primarily in the U.S., again, still a humongous market. Uh, Robinhood as a brokerage uh, is getting a really significant value for just taking one piece of you know, new financial services and being much smaller than its peers, um, who are more established, uh, square is is in the middle of a, a bigger market opportunity with this direct deposit, with the brokerage uh, and with the money movement and the number of people on the platform. Um, but again, you're making a really long term play and I, I don't think the again, profitability comparison to banks anytime over the next five to seven years will make any sense um, in terms of a comparable you''re you're, you're looking over a much longer term horizon and saying and I do think square, for these reasons, for the success they're having on you know new merchants uh, working with them versus traditional acquirers, new consumers you know opening direct deposit uh, with Cash App versus a traditional bank, I think over time that just compounds and accrues, and as those folks' net worth and, and those businesses grow and those folks' net worth increase, um, you know there's a really reasonable scenario where they're a multi-hundred billion dollar business you know down the road, and that's the that's the bet people are making. Uh, today, by the way, I think there will be. I, I think there will be an opportunity to, to buy the stock at a cheaper price. I'm not a trader. Um, it, it feels like a lot of optimism is priced in today, uh, and their core business is still SMBs in the United States, uh, and those that segment is extremely hard hit right now, and you can see it in their financials and the allowances they're making um, for uh, you know for, for debt and for cash flow issues and for chargebacks. With some of their merchants so i think in the near term there might be an opportunity to buy but i think long term it's going to be a multi-hundred billion dollar plus business
0: good to know but uh, as always we will remind our listeners that that is not investment advice and for people oh, yeah, to do their not own research. But but I'm interested, um, Alex, in your perspective in terms of the the lessons that we can take from a square and what you know banks can and should be doing because you mentioned watching them closely, but sort of um, there's a lot of things there's a lot of things that uh, Jason mentioned there about embedding finance or appearing at the point of need that I think is really really interesting. is that something you're thinking about, and is that something that you know modern technology and/ or ways of working can enable you to do, and, and how do you think about that?
1: Well, I think one lesson is that um it is, the need to, um, just launch new products that are relevant and to keep launching them and to see, this is what Square's done so well. They've, they've, they've sought out underserved parts of the market and they just keep launching these new, new Products and uh, they're making acquisitions as well, so it's it's filling up all those those empty spaces. Of course, it's Im- embedding the processes in, in which is which is really really important. But it's all about relevance and usefulness, and it, they're coming at the market and their products from really seeking. I mean, it sounds like stating the bleeding obvious, but this is not what the big banks have done traditionally. They haven't looked at what is the need and how could we fulfill it. They've looked at what can we do and how can we sell it. So it's it's turning it around. And I think that's really, really important. And, and you know, this is a textbook uh, case. I'm not an investment advisor either, but I also agree that there'll be buying opportunities. A lot of hedges are in there right now um, and they'll bail out at some point
0: interesting stuff. Uh, Jason, as you look at the, across the payments industry, you know, there's Stripe, but there's also people like Shopify who are potentially coming down into this space from SMBs on the acquiring side. Uh, there's a lot of other folks and there's a big valuation on on payments and on platforms. How do you feel about that competitive landscape? Do you think there'll be consolidation? Do you think there's room for lots of these? Because the, the Chinese model is quite different. There's only really two major players in, in, in that space, uh, maybe three, arguably with JD.com. Do you think we'll see Consolidation, or do you think that uh, you know, there's going to be room for five or six of these mega platforms?
3: I wish I knew. I mean, <laughs> when we do work across the world, you go into a region, and there's generally five or six banks that seem to have the majority of the market share, uh, and that, that's fairly consistent across territories. Um, and it's also interesting that when you look at social networks, you know, you've um, you've got very Particular social networks for particular needs. There's not just one that uh, engulfs them all. There's LinkedIn for business. There's Facebook for your family. There's TikTok for for the young and all, all, all kinds of things. So, um, so it's an interesting question as to uh, as to what. And I think we were talking about it a couple of weeks ago. What these sort of constellations of services will uh, will form around. You know, and uh, I've got a sort of pet hypothesis that we'll see this embedded finance constellation, escrow and insurance and payments and lending around that kind of point of need. And there'll be specialists at that. We'll see something around everyday finance, managing my everyday money. And that's a sort of, you know, a personal need. But also the investment and the savings and longer term stuff, because do I want to look at my, my mortgage or my, you know, shares on the way to the bus stop uh, while I'm trying to work out whether I can buy something? Not really. My longer term finances is a Sunday morning thing. My day to day finances is, a, is, a, you know, is, is more uh, frequent. So I do think that, that we won't have mega apps where your entire financial life will just be in one bank. Um, there are going to be contexts and apps only have a sort of a certain size before they get unwieldy. So I think there are certain contexts like everyday money, like uh, longer term investments, like the services that will embed like Klarna and Stripe and all of those kinds of areas. Um, and my my bet is that, you know, small business banking is very different from personal banking. Uh, sorry, Starling. But um, I think that there's a, um, you know, the the integration of cash flow management and all of the jobs around small business are very different from the checking account of a 22-year-old. They're not now because banks have traditionally have this like a checking account for an individual is just like a small business checking account but for a corporate entity. But actually when you when you start to define and build these intelligent services, it makes those things much more specialised. And that specialisation then leads you down into niches. The question is whether the network effects and the balance sheets of being bigger outweigh or or how those fight against the benefits of becoming a more niche player. And there's some optimal size. So so my bet is there are a few big players, but they won't be omnibanks that do everything for everyone just as there isn't a social network that does everything for everyone because there's a, there's a certain way these markets fracture around context and need
0: interesting stuff well um, i'm sure we could cover context for a while jason i think that whole area deserves a show on on its own and and the context that uh, people start to serve and the platforms that support that and then the the different design patterns that suit it best um, but i'm going to move us to the next story because it's about that time and this one this one could have been a headline from 20 years ago but it seems like it's uh, it's here and it's making a comeback so eu banks are apparently going to take on visa and mastercard with a new payment system story comes from reuters 16 banks from Germany, France, and three other Eurozone countries on Thursday said um, that a truly European payment system was expected to be up and running in 2022 to fully digitalize, whatever that means, a region where half of all retail payments are still cash. The so-called European Payments Initiative aims to become a new standard means of payment, offering a card for consumers and retailers across Europe. It will cover all types of transactions, including in-store Online, cash withdrawal, peer to peer, and existing, uh, in addition to existing international payment scheme solutions. So banks include BBVA, BNP Paribas, Commerzbank, Deutsche Bank, Santander, ING, and Soci- Societe Generale. So this is an interesting one. I'm, I'm going to start with you, Jason, because like this payment space has been um, kind of something we were covering there for a second. But you were talking about context, and I wonder if there's uh, there's something about the rails here. Is is it time for new rails? Are there space for new sort of
3: transacting rails? And
0: it, it'd be pretty hard to do this. But what do you think the, the rationale behind doing this
3: might be? I think there's two stories going on here. I think one is that the the established rails of old where a you know, sixteen digit PAN card number can be used to transfer a particular amount of cash in a particular currency to this other bank with a few, you know, eighteen characters to identify or whatever. And although MasterCard and Visa have all kinds of metadata, it's very it's poor data. It's not contextual data. And you can't do poll payments and polling payments and uh, all kinds of clever things that you might do in the messaging world. So um, so when you look at Alipay and Amazon Pay, for that, for that matter, um, there are new rails around which have pull and push and a variety of different mechanisms for sending uh, uh, cash that also allow you to build in metadata that actually mean that the transaction is richer than just uh, the movement of money. It's the movement of data. And that is a great base at that rails layer for new financial products for new financial services and everything that goes above that um, so on one hand you might say well there's always been this oligopoly or there's been an oligopoly for a fair time because of the expense of putting in uh, you know the telecommunications captive infrastructure to run these kinds of things that's gone you know we've everyone's got the internet uh, a corner shop in New Delhi can now connect via a mobile phone network to a global telecommunications network. So suddenly the the barriers to entry just like shops on um, branches on the high street isn't there around creating new rails if you could make it happen. I think the second story is uh, is one of protectionism. You know, you've got uh, US companies uh, both Mastercard, Visa, Amex, and SWIFT, for that matter, um, who control much of the and tax in some ways much of the financial transactions in the world, and we've seen you know in the US SWIFT almost being used as a as a as a sanctions mechanism to prevent some businesses and some countries from dealing in international finance. So you know in this world where we seem to be you. Know, Backing away from globalization and becoming much more protectionist in our blocks, if you're relying on you know on infrastructure that that belongs over the water then then that creates some um, some problems as to well what if Trump decides actually we should tax every transaction that goes through these uh, you know mechanisms so so part of it is there's the opportunity to do it part of it is it makes a lot of money, but also, but it's going to make less money over time. So it really needs to be infrastructure. And uh, and for me, part of it is this protectionist. What's happening in the world? Geopolitical story. Wow, um,
0: there's a good old mix of stuff there to try and follow up on, Jason. But Alex wants to jump in here. I'm, I'm interested in your views.
1: Well, I, no, I've I've got a question for Jason. Actually, that was absolutely fascinating. And um, you know, I I my first reaction where I saw this was was the political dimension and. Uh, this looks like politics and protectionism, which is not normally or is not always um, uh, result in successful products. And I just wondered, Jason, are these, you, you talked very, very eloquently, they have the need for, um, every, for change here. But are these the right people to bring us this change?
3: Um, who knows? In the, in the best case scenario, yes. Uh, in, the, in the worst case, they just build what Visa and MasterCard have done, but their own version. And and you know we move on from there. I I, I hope that um, things like Alipay, um, which you know suddenly we've got QR payments and uh, and a variety of different mechanisms, or even Apple Pay with their new little QR code um, uh, you know mechanism, are actually going to drive the market forward. Um, a, a bit like how the challenger banks have in the UK driven the big players along. Hopefully, we'll see some smaller plays. And hopefully, some great consultants are going to be getting involved in this kind of um, uh, uh, delivery in order to uh, to, to give them um, more ambition, shall we say, than let's create, let's recreate what Visa and Mastercard did.
0: Indeed, Jason. I think I, I'm it's not
3: hopeful, but I. But mm-hmm.
0: you yeah. know. Well, I mean, uh, I'm interested in a US perspective, Mike, because from the bureaucrats that brought you the single European payments area and and the Payment Service Directive too. I mean, some interesting things came out of that. I mean, strong customer authentication and uh, it, it's not a bad idea at its heart. PSD two and open banking is not a bad idea at its heart. Often, it's an, an implementation thing, and the US model is quite different, right? I mean, you have Plaid and you have all of the benefits that um, a, a lot of the things folks in Europe have, except some of the payment systems maybe aren't as fast, but then you end up with um, the market bringing you things like cash app. So how how do you reflect on on Europe doing this? Do you think there's the political dimension? And do you think it would really make a difference for small businesses and consumers at the end of the day?
2: Yeah, that's the ultimate question. So this seems, I'm a little bit confused about one you know, who's really behind this so so is the european the european central bank welcomes the banks decision to do this or they actively encouraged it and pushed it uh, you know i bet the press release isn't quite what actually happened uh, it sounds more like a pushing them to do it but i'm really skeptical of any technology product um, or solution that basically is one of This thing has two things going against it. It, One, uh, like you said, it's trying to solve sort of a political, uh, potentially a political problem. And two, it's a consortium. Like the more people you start to try to build a simple, effective thing with, especially when it comes to banks, like 16 of them, that's like, that seems like the absolute wrong approach, uh, uh, you know, in fact, it probably would be better to establish, you know, an external. It sounds like they have established an external entity, but you know, with sixteen big seats at the table, I just don't know how you uh, solve for everybody want, everybody's wants and needs. And there's the further problem of having, you know, banks be both the issuers and the networks. Um, you know, what's ultimately in it for the consumer? How are they going to incentivize me to switch from Visa? Um, to the European Payments Initiative card-like network. Uh, it's just that uh, there's technical issues, there's issues of coordination. Uh, the, the upside that I see here is if they can get anything out the door, they might be able to you know, obviously scare and, and have some leverage to push Visa and MasterCard to add a number of the really basic features like metadata push and pull that, that Jason was talking about earlier. And I think that's probably going to be the, the most likely best outcome is, hey, you know, we get a, they stand up a network that works and has some features, and there's not going to be a lot of consumers we are going to naturally opt into this, and banks aren't going to spend a ton of marketing money to get folks to use it when Visa and MasterCard work, um, but it might push Visa and MasterCard to make uh, their networks you know, more consumer and more bank-friendly.
0: It'll be interesting to see, Mike. Uh, I'm going to um, offer it open to Alex and to Jason in the last word of this, especially in light of both Visa and MasterCard having acquired um, you know, Plaid and Finicity, respectively. Do you think there's something about those payment networks trying to get closer into what banks do around um, sort of the, the account data and the identity and and sort of commoditizing the banks a little bit? And the banks, especially the European ones, maybe don't feel like they have a voice. And is there also something about cashless in there as well?
1: Well, I I don't have a lot of views on this other than I think the whole issue of cash. I didn't quite see the link in this story between developing this network and trying to persuade people to to not use cash. I don't think the two things are necessarily linked. I think it's absolutely fascinating um, to look at the use of cash and how it differs from country to country and how that's affected by cultural norms. And I don't think, however clever this is, this is the thing that's going to To change that you know what's going to shift the use uh, of cash or not the use of cash is things like the lockdown and um, coronavirus getting germs all over money Uh, also money is expensive Um, uh, but um, I I think I'm uh, defer to Jason on the the bigger questions here.
3: (laughs) That's what we all do. (laughs) Very kind. Um, I think Mastercard and Visa have to diversify you know, you can't be a card business forever um, when bank to bank transfer is obviously going to happen reasonably quickly. And you've got all kinds of new and interesting. Mechan- the, 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 uh, the moat is eroding or, or being filled in. You know, the walls are, are crumbling a little. So what are you going to do with the vast waves of money that you're making at the moment? You're going to buy Vocalink. You're going to get into Plaid. You're going to, to really get across that landscape of electronic transfer of funds. And how will that happen in the future? And how can we build the fabric of that of those financial services? Um, and I think, that, you know, whether that's in the crypto space or in faster payments or in whatever that they're trying to, to look at, uh, open banking, um, they've got to be looking to their their next, you know, multi-billion dollar business, because the the card scheme um, model uh, of taxation is is going to erode uh, slowly and then very rapidly, just like everything uh, in the that gets digitized.
0: Indeed, indeed, and it's interesting that the payments companies like Visa and Mastercard, over the past couple of decades, their margins have actually increased, even uh, even as they've scaled. And that you should expect to see the opposite as as they get commoditized. And there's something going on. And if you look at uh, the, to the earlier point about Square and even WorldPay and, and payments businesses seem to be doing a lot better than banking businesses do generally. And then they seem to grab more and more data about the payment as they go. And value is aggregating to whoever provides the rails more so than the people who are pushing the lending up through those rails. So it's going to be uh, interesting to watch this one play out, I'm sure. And we'll, uh, we'll come back to it time and time again. Um, we'll be back very, very shortly. Let's take a quick break and just tell you a little bit about some of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you
2: by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest global platform of interconnected data centers, enabling fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of over 200 data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinix.co.uk.
0: Okay, I'm back on with a new show where we're going to take a look at some other news, starting off with some a little bit closer to home. Um, The team at Starling seems to have been very busy this week with some announcements. So um, rather than me cover it, Alex, do you want to just talk through uh, some of your announcements?
1: This week Starling launched our uh, business toolkit, which is a suite of products for our business customers to help them with their cash flow, um, their tax calculations, their VAT calculations. We launched this actually um, in beta in January. We've been testing it and now we've gone out for it. It is a paid for product for us. It's seven pounds a month. Although if you sign up By 31st of July, you get three months for free, Um, and this is really part of our commitment to our small and medium-sized business customers um, who we are hoping to serve in new and different ways. Equally, we launched a US dollar account for those small businesses. That is mainly intended for uh, businesses who transact in dollars, who might have uh, customers or suppliers um, that, that deal in dollars. And it just makes life a lot easier for them. We all already have a euro business account. And so our business customers can uh, transact in uh, dollars and euros and pound sterling now. They can get them all on the same card. So we've got a uh, card is truly multi-currency now. And um, this, uh, these two products we announced this week are part of a suite of more stuff that's coming. Um, and that brings us to the other thing we were uh, announced uh, in the last few days, which is uh, we are going back to uh, banking competition remedies to apply for a further grant um, uh, listeners may remember that last year, in uh, February 2019, Starling was award- awarded a £100 million grant from this independent fund um, set up to uh, increase competition in the market for small business banking. And uh, Starling uh, has been busy using that money to build out features and products for our business customers. One thing we were able to do is build out our lending capability and build our lending platform, which then meant we were well positioned to do uh, government-backed lending uh, for people affected by co- businesses affected by coronavirus. So we're going back. There's uh, uh, a pool of uh, grants, a £35 million grant, a £25 million grant, and some for 10. So we're applying for the 35 or the £25 million and um, uh, we think that we have demonstrated already that we are capable of um, delivering and executing on all the commitments we made with the first grant so we hope we'll get the second one too
0: yeah fingers crossed for all involved um i do have to ask the question of course um what are you going to do that's different to the sort of the grant funding that you won sort of with the first hundred million i guess there's there's additional stuff
1: Yes, what we, what we would do uh, if we're successful with this money, we would spend it on serving uh, uh, a wider range of SMEs. Uh, our SME customers are mainly um, at the S end of SME and very simple structures. This would enable us to deal with uh, more complex uh, company types and uh, larger SMEs. So that would be the aim.
0: And, and then the, the other question that that um, is the immediate follow-up is uh, – why a dollar account when historically your international expansion is really focused on Ireland and Europe and and Euro? It, you, you mentioned something about receiving dollars. Do you see a lot of smaller businesses dealing with dollars? Or is is it something along those lines?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of what we build, we 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 build after talking to our customers uh, and based on customer feedback. Uh, uh, it's. Um, it's not rocket science that we are. It's a crazy idea. Want. Crazy. <laughs> what, what do you want? What do you need, guys? So uh, we think there will be a big market for that. Uh, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, um, Mike, I mean, you mentioned earlier that uh, the S&B sector in the U.S. and smaller businesses are really on the knees. Uh, I guess, uh, do you think that uh, there's going to be additional help they need, um, new products and services, but additional help more broadly as businesses start to open back up? Is there going to be a lag? Are we going to see them really struggle even possibly more as the economy slowly starts to open up or thinks about opening up?
2: Uh, unquestionably, you know, in the U.S., if you walk the streets of, of New York City, you see you have know, plenty of boarded-up buildings. Uh, you see the pop. There's tremendous population shifts. So, um, you know, I live in Tribeca, and the neighborhood has, has emptied out. There's two moving trucks a day, you know, just in my building. So. One is you're going to, that dislocation will change the dynamics of where an SMB is needed. So some are going to shut down, you know, restaurants going to shut down here, open up wherever these folks are going. Uh, but more concerning than that is just this reopening feels increasingly as cases rise across the U.S. And th- I'm answering with the very U.S.-focused view. Uh, I think that there's going to be significant disruption to the millions of small businesses Um you know, I run a, run a small business as chairman of the block, uh, you know, 25 people. And, you know, we were one of the many folks who took a PPP loan and it was much needed to ensure that we could continue to employ all the folks, you know, on staff. We are a business that's moving towards profitability, but not there yet. Um, we're one of many businesses that was impacted adversely by, you know, COVID and continues to be in many ways. Uh, And I talk with tons of business owners, both in tech, but also, you know, the folks on the street, right, who are running these local physical businesses, and they're deeply impacted. So there will need to be either additional financial help, or a number of businesses are going to go away. Now, they will, you know, those those people will, will not go out of the economy, they'll come back into it and do other things. But I do think that the small business landscape in the US, which is what I'm familiar with, is going to look very different in terms of its mix. For example, in New York, you're not going to see, let's say, half of the restaurants come back anytime soon. So it's just a very different model. Fewer restaurants, more national chains. I think you're going to see a move from SMBs to bigger platforms. I mean, I could talk all day about this, but uh, a lot of transitions and and a lot of help needed for small businesses uh, for an extended period of time, particularly as we see more waves of COVID.
0: Indeed. And, and Jason, in the UK, we saw bounce back loans. We saw uh, kind of the coronavirus business interruption loans. We've seen uh, all kinds of efforts now by um, Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, to get people spending in restaurants again. Uh, you know, do you think that people will? And, and, and what do you think sort of the horizon and help looks like for small businesses? What are, what are they thinking about and focused on?
3: Well, of course, in the UK, we've had the furlough scheme. Uh, which has allowed the government to almost kick the problem down the road and hope that we can kickstart things before millions of people have to be made unemployed. Um, the obviously the announcements are that that finishes in October, so we're going to start to find out very rapidly what that looks like. Um, and just no one, no one knows. No one has st- kickstarted an economy from scratch, uh, and t- uh, and you've you've got to worry that the extended ecosystem of businesses that rely on revenue from other businesses and other businesses and eventually a consumer is going to suffer from this from this dislocation. Uh, and we, I think we're going to see that towards the end of the year. And then we'll start to see rolling issues caused by that. Um, so I, I think there are, there are going to be some tough times ahead and banks are going to have some problems around the loans that they've made to businesses of all types um, who are going to struggle in this era? Never mind the fact that the new normal is actually going to be a different normal than what came before. And so, with more people working from home, what does that what happens in Tribeca then? You know, and there's uh, I was re- uh, watching a video by I think it was The Economist. We're talking about some fact that for every knowledge worker, there are like 25 other people who are employed in the vicinity, um, in all of the ancillary services that support that industry in a particular area so you think about london you know the pret a on the corner and the gym and the hairdressers and the dry cleaners you know all of these businesses are not going to go back to normal because we're not going to be back in the office and lots of people aren't going to be back in the office so i think we're going you know my my prediction is we're going through a period of of mass disruption and and in those times, for some people, it's massive opportunity. Okay, there's not the dry cleaners there. But suddenly, because everyone's working from home, personal trainers in that area are going to do amazingly well, yet the big gym that hired out some super expensive real estate in the centre of London less well. So adaptation, again, is going to be the, uh, the theme. Um, but I think we're in for some difficult times. Interesting stuff, Jay.
0: And I want to throw it back to Alex here because I think um, some interesting points raised by the, the gents there, Alex. But I, I wonder if that um, sort of chimes with what you're hearing from your small business community. I mean, there are obviously different businesses are struggling, but maybe if I'm a freelancer and I work internationally and I work from home, that might be different to restaurants who suddenly can only handle half the capacity that they had before, even even in a best case. So what, what are you hearing and, and what do you think the prognosis looks like for the sector?
1: Well, I don't want to make light of uh, the difficulty that a lot of companies are, are facing and um, uh, a lot of them ring me up personally because my number's on the website. So I hear their stories. I talk to these business owners. Um, we've, we've had a lot of companies that tell us how um, their bounce back loans have enabled them to pivot, take advantage of new opportunities, find new markets. Um, so, but those are the ones we hear from. Uh, we don't necessarily hear from the ones who are struggling um, to, to make ends, ends meet, uh, even with their loans. So we don't know yet. Um, I think we, I think there's, there, there's a sort of, what's been interesting about this period is that um, there's a lot of pent up demand for spending. You know, the amount of money held in bank accounts has gone up um, because people are not spending money. And I think there will be a, a whoosh of spending at some point. Uh, and then that will stop. So the economy is going to look like it's recovering. And then everyone's got used to doing all their spending. And then then the harsh fact of the small businesses closing and relocating, you know, cafes will and restaurants will relocate to where the people are in their homes. People will go back to their offices. Not everybody likes working from home. Uh, people who live in a flat share who've got six people and they're all sitting on the edge of their beds with their laptops on their knees. Um... Working from home is not necessarily much fun for them, uh, and if they're young, they are at a lower risk of uh, the worst effects of COVID. So I think I think we will see some people moving back into the offices, uh, whether it's full time or part time. I don't know, um, but I don't think I don't think we're all going to stay at home. Um, and I think there's also the mental health issue of everybody working from home. It, it doesn't suit everyone. Really.
0: Absolutely, Alex. I think that that sort of um the pain is yet to come on the job losses and the wish of spending as you so eloquently put it, um, I think is is really, really useful. Jason, last point before we move to the next one. No, no, one.
3: I, I was gonna say I, I think the savings and the the balances in bank accounts is super interesting. I was reading an article about the US where savings rate have hit a I think it's a record thirty three percent as as a, as the you know Americans are stockpiling cash and, and spending less. You know, if there's any kind of silver lining, um, I do think that actually people starting to save more, starting to put some more money away, um, you know, it, it is part of that. But, um, but it, I mean, it really had a massive impact in terms of savings rates across the globe.
0: Yeah, so many bankers uh, we speak to, Jason, are saying they're not struggling to attract deposits anymore. They've got the opposite problem. It's making those deposits work for them. Um, They can fund their balance sheet, but they can't lend off it because you don't know what risk looks like in this environment. Um, I'm going to move us to the next story, and this one comes from AltFi, and it's about SockGen acquiring a neobank called Shine. Um, So Shine has 70,000 customers that they've gained over the last two years, and they uh, serve primarily small businesses and the self-employed, and they offer a fully digital bank account and several other helpful features such as invoicing, accounting, and tips on how to better run their business. Sound, sounds very familiar. Um, the fintech will continue to develop independently from Socgen, and with the hope to grow organically with the support of the French bank. Socgen plans to use Shine to extend its own business banking offering and will offer Shine services to its existing business banking clients. Earlier this year, Shine was also awarded a B Corp certification, which is only given to companies that have the highest standards of social and environmental awareness. So, shout out to those guys. Um, so, uh, this is this is quite interesting. Um, the French fintech scene has been sort of a, a quiet story that nobody really talks about, and it's it's interesting to see this happen. But also, uh, we, Jason, we saw with uh, when I think it was BBVA acquired Simple. Um, these big bank acquisitions don't always go well, even if they say they're going to be hands-off. So what do you think the prognosis for this could be? Do you think it could work? And and, and where are they playing in this SMB sector? What might the logic be there?
3: It's really difficult to tell. I mean, I, I don't know Shine well. Obviously, 70,000 customers is well, is vanishingly small compared to the majority of the market. Um, so a, a very early play. And for a for a VC who's backing you to back the sale at seventy thousand customers to a large bank. You know, if you were really, you know, if you really had an amazing uh, product and a rapidly growing um, client base, uh, I'm not. I, I don't know many founders who would want to sell at that point. So there's, there's part of me that does worry about the story and about uh, wh- when when this was bought and how it was worked, uh, how it was done. But but you're right, Holvi, simple. You know, there's plenty. of, Holvi is a great example. You know, there are there are plenty of stories of big bank buying startup, and then in some way just not uh, making it work to its its full potential.
0: Indeed, because once you have the parent entity owning a good percentage of you, then suddenly you become subject to all of its compliance teams and its regulations. And with the best of intent, things can still end up sort of slowing down. And I, th- I think that's interesting, um, Alex. Jason mentioned seventy thousand customers wasn't that many, but actually in the SMB in the freelancer space, that, that's a that's a good old amount, isn't it? Because the deposit bases tend to be a little bit higher.
1: Um, deposit bases are much higher for the SMB accounts. Uh, so so yeah, it 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 is um uh it is a bigger number for that for that type of business. But that number seventy thousand just it rang bells for me because when I joined Starling in March twenty eighteen. I remember telling my mom, Oh, they've got 70,000 customers. Um, and I was so excited by that. And here we are, um, two years later with 1.5 million. So, but I, I saw this story and you know, the, the thing that leapt out at me with the words, um, uh, the FinTech will continue to develop independently from Sock gen. Um, no, it won't. Um, uh, they wouldn't have bought it if they were going to let it develop independently. You know, they're, they're either just this is either an acquihire where they just want the talent or they want some IP um, or they'll mess it up with their bureaucracy and their big corporate rules. And I'm just very, very cynical about that. The reason why fintechs succeed is not because they're owned by a big bank. It's because they're not owned by a big bank.
0: Ooh, uh, them's fighting words. But I, I mean, Mike, I, I saw you nodding to that. Do you not think that there's a chance that SockGen could get this right? And especially in that small business sector where, you know, maybe their offering isn't as competitive and they can say, well, you know, this we're not playing in that ultra small business freelancer side. That's all for Shine and, and we are hands off. Do you think it's a possibility?
2: Yeah, I, I guess it's just a question of what, what does a big bank bring? to shine's business that it didn't have as an independent business it's it's probably you know cash and and marketing and yeah like it's it's that simple if, if they truly are hands off and let the entrepreneurs run the business and push cash into it and allow them to you know really get out there and and market their business like look there may be an advantage here i don't know what the economics of, of that particular business and that particular market are um, and what Advantage Shine has versus others, but uh, you know, banks don't have a history of buying startups and let and and letting the existing product if it's relatively small acquisition. You know, simple, you've seen Simple in the US, like of, of those things, just they haven't been big successes.
3: I mean, I, I see in uh, you know, I was just looking back through the kind of TechCrunch uh, archives, September fourth, twenty eighteen. Shine raised nine point three million dollars in a Series A, uh, building an alternative to bank accounts. So um, you know, so it's had a it's had a few rounds, nothing massive, but it's all about the micro company in France, which is the delivery driver, the freelancer who needs to report on their their um, you know corporate taxes, report sales tax, all of that kind of thing. So I can see you know France has its uh, has its own intricacies and its own culture and its own Sort of financial services ecosystem. So um, you know, so I can see that they were growing this thing around. I don't know Deliveroo and Uber Eats and everything else. Um, uh, but but I don't know. Like uh, I, I think it's uh, it's difficult for for startups when they're acquired to uh, to lose those seats on the board and to lose the risk taking in the right way. Uh, uh because now you've got someone uh you know major with a big brand uh to protect and so they don't really want you i think pushing the boundaries as to what can be done
0: and i wonder about the french sort of late stage vc um, ecosystem as well it took quite some time for UK tech and fintech to to kind of hit that west Coast money or to find um, the kind of the investor that could go later stage or that understood later stage in terms of its of its ecosystem um, and so I think we saw this with the early stage fintechs even including simple and moving and others you know if they'd have come five years later would they have had different outcomes and different uh, different investors um, it's going to be one to watch but I'm going to move us on to the next story because I feel like this one's just the story that, the gift that keeps Keeps on giving. Um, this is the mysterious case of Wirecard's missing chief operating officer. Story was covered in Finextra, but my goodness. Um, so, of course, no show is complete without some discussion of Wirecard, and this week, of course, is no different. Um, this time, we're looking into the murky whereabouts of their COO, who's been missing since dismissal from the firm in the wake, of course, of the discovery of 1.9 billion euro, uh, sorry, billion yeah euro black hole in the in their accounts it was said he was in he went to china via the philippines however this may not actually be the case it appears fake immigration records in the philippines were used to throw authorities off the scent of the wirecard chief operating officer according to the financial times video footage Airline manifests and other records confirm that he never entered the country and German police are still trying to find him. Additionally, the Philippines Central Bank is investigating allegations that the documents purporting to show the Wirecard held billions of euros in escrow at two of the country's lenders were, in fact, forgeries.
3: Are you sure this isn't a blockchain story?
0: <laughs> Mike, it does have that field about it, doesn't it?
2: Uh, I mean, they certainly... They were affiliated with a tremendous number of crypto companies. If you were issuing a crypto credit card like Crypto.com and others were, you're probably using Wirecard to do so. Uh, They were on the edge of virtually every sort of controversial or edge case um, business out there possible. But look, this is uh, I actually am more interested having started a, a media and information publication about how this story was reported. What's most fascinating to me is not that these folks you know, looked to be criminals and there was massive fraud perpetrated, but the fact that for you know, five years, the German regulators and, and government uh, went after reporters who were doing great investigative journalism that you know, basically any first-year accountant who reviewed that material would have said, look, there's some probable fraud here. UI missed it for years, or covered it up potentially for years. Mm-hmm. And that's the story here. Um, not that the COO, is, who is is you know clearly, who looks to be a scammer, is now evading law. I mean, it just this is going to end up similar to the billion dollar whale story. Um, you know, one MDB. There's, I'm sure, many more layers to, of the onion to peel back, but uh, you know, classic has all the hallmarks of classic massive systemic multi year fraud. And I can only wait. I can't wait to see you know, who the other people are in the little black book who are involved in this.
0: I can't wait for the Netflix documentary personally, but um, Alex, I'm interested in uh, kind of the fallout from some of this stuff, because a lot of organizations used Wirecard to kind of get moving a lot of the fintechs, and they're all sort of lumped in the same bucket. Do you think there's a consumer sort of uh, worry about fintech as a result of this? Has some of the, the brand toxicity rubbed off, do you think, on some other fintechs who may have had nothing to do with this?
1: Uh, absolutely. I think that, uh, just like to say that Starling has never used a uh, wire card. Uh, uh, and I think that the, the contagion is a real issue when anything goes wrong in the sector. It's it's still a small and new sector and it, it's still got issues of trust and needs to, you know, work very hard on that front. So whenever there's anything like this, um, uh, it, you know, we, we we are worried about, contagion but i would say this particular story is so out there i mean that the scale and this does appear to um allegedly have been a uh, criminal enterprise it, that's what it looks like i mean from from the outside uh perpetrated over many years um uh, in a way that almost puts it in a different category. But uh on a more serious level, yeah, it, it it's not helpful to the sector. Um and, you know, a plague on their houses, the wire card people, because, you know, they, they they're damaging a sector that, that's trying to do a lot of good work. And I think also, I think that UK regulator, you know, when they suspended the UK UK operations, that you know, that meant that the customers of Pocket and other um uh you know, genuine businesses were affected in a way that wasn't particularly helpful, actually. And um, uh, that's, that's pretty tough on those customers.
0: Pretty tough indeed already. I think we've said all we can say on Wirecard. We've definitely covered it the last two shows as well. So we'll uh, we'll move on. Um, and as we're getting towards the end of the show, we just wanted to round up some of the other stories this week that we didn't have time to cover. There is simply so much happening this week. We can't cover everything. Um, but these stories did, in fact, deserve a shout out. Uh, Jason, do you want to start us off?
3: Sure. So in the first story, a gambling awareness charity in the UK has criticized UK banks for failing to properly use card blocking technology designed to prevent users from accessing gambling sites via their debit and credit cards. Uh, Monzo and Starling are actually two of the early uh, proponents of this. Um, the UK spent £14.5 billion on gambling in 2018, while gambling addiction has been estimated to cost up to £1.2 billion a year. The University of Bristol Research found that 40% of current accounts, equivalent to 28 million users, uh, don't offer any credit card blocking or actually debit card blocking features.
0: It's interesting, Jason, isn't it? If uh, the and Starling hadn't have put in uh, the gambling blocking feature in the first place, would you have an awareness charity even um, criticizing other banks for not having it when the thing didn't even exist in the first place? Absolutely. Story from Sky News. Uh, TransferWise is on the brink of joining an exclusive club of UK startups to achieve a $5 billion valuation with a share offering that's attracting uh, interest from major global investors. The share sale was being undertaken at a $5 billion valuation, which was a 30% premium to an almost identical transaction about a year ago. And of course, as we know, TransferWise, founded about nine years ago, now employs 2,200 people, boasting 8 million customers and a £4 billion monthly cross-border transaction volume. Uh, in has issued a total of around 1 million debit cards, um, and co-founders uh, Tavi Hinkras and Christo Carman, I think I've said his name right, are thought to on roughly 40% of transfer-wise between them. So it's not quite the valuation of Square, but the British fintech valuations are also on the up. So could we ever see valuations in the tens of billions in the UK fintech space? What do we think? Maybe.
1: Of course we
2: will. Absolutely. Hey, they are almost uh, one other interesting uh, comparison. Uh, Ripple, I was just checking, XRP is is currently worth a, a $9 billion market cap. And uh, TransferWise is running a, a much, much larger and uh, and more valuable uh, business today. So,
3: worth noting. We had, to, we had to bring it back to Ripple at some point, didn't we? We had to just bring that blockchain the story in. Okay. And... Uh, My final snippet from the week is that Deutsche Bank and Google Cloud have agreed a multi-year cloud services deal. The arrangement will see the bank accelerate its plans to transition services to the cloud, but also co-develop products with engineers from Google Cloud, with the two parties sharing any revenue that arises. The deal is expected to run for 10 years, and Deutsche Bank expects to realise a cumulative return of investment in the excess of $1 billion. They prioritized revamp of their infrastructure as they seek to cut costs. In July 2019, it announced plans to cut a fifth of its workforce.
0: And finally, this week, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six is still the most popular online password. So millions of people around the world are leaving themselves vulnerable to hackers by choosing weak passwords. And apparently, the results uh, of a recent breach show that under just under 169 million unique passwords, with the top 100 most popular accounting for 6.6. Of all billion plus passwords. The string of 123456 accounts for 7 million of those. Meanwhile, only 12% of the passwords contain special characters, 29% have letters, <laughs> and 26% are lowercase only, 30% are numbers only. Um, wow. I guess whilst banks, retailers, and others experiment with alternative security measures such as uh, fingerprints, behavioral biometrics, passwords dominate the online world, Jason. Is it just that? users know how to use them or have we just fallen into bad habits what What do you think the reason passwords are hanging on there
3: um well they're they're a great basic form of security and fortunately they're completely overused for a vast majority of cases that don't need a password and so actually this this dump were, wasn't from banking in particular it was from websites across the world i don't know someone's blog that you read or a newsletter you've signed up to or i don't know a uh, a small retailer that you create an account with once in order to get a protein shake and now they've got your password. And I don't know about you, but when I get to those kinds of things, which on my hierarchy is way at the bottom before I used a password manager, which now just creates all these passwords for me, uh, I, I would just create you know, a, a basic throwaway one because I'd never remember it anyway. I'd always press the, I forgot my password, email me a reset um, because you know why have a password for this particular um sort of retailer or news outlet or whatever so um so i think again there's some overlapping stories there's one as to uh, the complete overuse of passwords there's another about the lack of infrastructure for basic users i know browsers yes. are starting to build some of this stuff in but for a long time it's been you know you're on your own get your little notepad notepad out or your little post it note or you know, your little notepad and away you go. So um, there's a few things going on, but it's not quite as obvious as, oh, those stupid users, they just don't know how to do this password thing.
0: Oh, yeah, I think scratching beneath the surface, Mike, is pretty interesting. There's been a lot happening, Mike, in, in the whole digital identity space for quite some time as well. Um, as you see things moving towards biometrics, do you think these problems start to go away? Or, you know, when's the right time for different levels of security, to, to Jason's point?
2: so the the most encouraging thing happening is the move to biometrics in in my opinion it's it's made it tremendously easier for me to use websites when i can log in with you know face id or with my finger on my macbook uh i'm a sophisticated internet user i understand that you know i've been sim hacked multiple times and understand you know the need for two-factor authentication uh I, I do agree with Jason that there's you know, overuse of passwords in, in cases where they really shouldn't be necessary. I like that we're moving towards biometrics. I like that we're moving towards sort of non-password-based logins where you know, links are emailed uh, to me directly. I think you'll see more of that. You'll see more things at the browser level. Anything that doesn't involve me creating something and then remembering it. The last step is password managers. I use LastPass. It's still too complex and frustrating. Uh, It's hard for me to use. And again, I'm very advanced, but I constantly am messing up. And and so those products just need to get better. But uh, I don't know what's going to... I think biometrics are going to get better and non-password-based security are going to get better faster uh, and solve these problems faster than password makers and, and managers are going to improve their products and make them usable.
0: And, and Alex, coming back to to individuals and consumers, I mean, you know, digital identity and using sort of digital security online is a big issue for different people. As a digital only bank, Stalling has is now taking on customers. I suspect that you know haven't had a digital only bank before and may have been used to passwords. How do you find people make that shift, especially people from different generations, different backgrounds, as they uh, may not be used to it? Is it is it a case of if I solve your problem and create the right experience, it's actually better for you, or do you think there's like a an education and a knowledge gap there that might be an issue too
1: i think we i think we've got a big job to do in education and in teaching people how to set passwords that are easy to remember but difficult to discover and there's some there's some tricks and we in fact we we do blog posts about it periodically um but i think the the way forward is biometrics but i would say that on biometrics we, we still need to do a lot of work here and by we i mean the entire world um because a lot of the um uh, data that informs though that software is um uh, not very good at recognizing um, different types of um, skin color uh, and it, it, it's uh, there are concerns about racial bias that need to really be looked into and it's because the sample populations used to build up some of these software were not diverse enough so I think it's the way forward but I think that um, it's not perfect yet and, and is an area that where everybody needs to cooperate on to make that better.
0: And, of course, privacy is going to be a massive issue as well. If I've got your biometrics, then um, there's huge privacy concerns there, of course. Um, Well, thank you, Alex. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Mike. Uh, That wraps up this week's show. Um, Where can people find out more about you, Mike? Starting with you.
2: Yeah, at M-D-U-D-A-S on Twitter. I am on there very often and enjoy discussion about fintech, commerce, uh, and so much more.
0: Thank you, Mike. Uh, Alex, how about you?
1: Uh, Starling is at starlingbank.com, and you'll find me on Twitter um, at freeny, like the peak freen biscuits.
0: <laughs> I like it. Good, good reference
3: there for the Brits. Um, and uh, how about you, Jason? I'm Jason Bates. You can find me building new banks of fintechs at 11FS um, or on Twitter at Jason Bates.
0: Uh, ditto. um but uh, you'll find me no at you you're Not
3: at Jason Bates. <laughs> I
0: was I was going to say, with the exception of uh, at S Y Taylor on Twitter, uh, or you can email me directly, Simon at fscom uh, Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, uh, please please subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. Uh, and if you want to get in the conversation or you have any suggestions, don't forget to. Uh, find us on social media uh look for uh, 11fs.com send us an email podcast at 11fs.com and remember to pass on the pod sharing is caring so do remember to share the podcast with everybody you know Uh, already that's all for this week and goodbye for now